Chapter Seven of Murder at Saint Denis by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Eloise stirred when the sun touched her. Then she sat up. She was in the room with the empty respirator. Her head throbbed. Gingerly she felt of the painful spot and found a swelling that shot daggers through her brain. Reeling, she sat there. She had come for a box. There was no box on the floor or on the dresser. If she could get to her feet without splitting her head wide open, she would look in the dresser drawers and in the closet. But the torturing hunt yielded nothing. Sick, she dragged herself to the door, down the hall, up the stairs, on up to the crow's nest. No one was astir. She had been too miserable to try to avoid being seen, yet nobody saw her. When she fell into bed, Marmion, soundly sleeping, did not move. Down in the bare and chilly basement room, where Big Balsam lay, there was no bright sunlight, nothing but grimy shadows in the corners, and white twilight around the sheeted stretcher. The stretcher was very narrow, even narrower than the lung had been. They had laid pillows over him, bringing him down here, smoothing the sheet over the pillows, so that an aroused patient glancing out would think only that Jock was wheeling a load of bedding. The pillows were gone now. The sheet, wielded in the dampness of the room, clung far too revealingly, as if the man's features and powerful limbs were carved in marble like the ancient figures reclining on the stone caskets of abbeys. Big Balsam's feet were not crossed. He had not been a crusader. Nothing moved in the small place, not even a breath of air, until the doorknob turned stealthily. It was a long minute more before the door swung in, so slowly, so silently, that it was more like a parting of the gloom back there along the shadowy wall. The corner of the sheet moved, as it might move with a slight easing of the stiff position on the stretcher. Pussyfoot, who had let only his head into the room, jerked back. It was all he could do to keep from slamming the door. Clutching the knob, he stood panting, listening, shaking, his tongue salty from the spot he had bitten. He didn't want to go in there. He didn't want to at all. He hadn't wanted to go into that other room, either but it had been good for him in the long run. The faint draft of the door was damp and smelled like a grave, newly dug in wet clay. A natural enough phenomenon, since he himself had mopped the room early in the afternoon and left the customary puddles on the cement floor. What was there to be scared of in a place where he had slapped down spiders and slopped around suds only a few hours earlier? It wouldn't be like that other room, somebody poking in. With a gathering of courage, Pussyfoot pushed the door wide enough to let himself in. He wouldn't shut it after him. Should someone discover him, there was no explanation necessary. Anyone could keep company with the dead, even one who had been quite unwelcome in life. Reluctantly, a step at a time, feeling every grain of cool wet cement under his bare soles, Pussyfoot stole forward. He wished the pillows were still between Big Balsam and the sheet. He wished he had never come in here. But more than anything, he wanted to look once more at Big Balsam. He shifted the box under his arm, the box that looked as if it might contain a dozen long-stemmed roses. Then, furtively, he took hold of the smooth, wide hem of the sheet and lifted it back. For the better part of the past two hours he had thought over what he would say, contemptuous, biting, uncautious things that had dinged at him for years and never dared come out. He would say them now, probably in a whisper, but with venom. And then the sheet was down to Cassidy's chin and Pussyfoot's hand was on it still. He studied the face, clear now of all human emotion. 
the ruthless lines were gone around the mouth around the eyes were none of the crow's feet that had screwed them into boring intensity in the solid jaw the muscles were relaxed to the roundness of youth this was the face of the man he could have been not the man he ever was pussyfoot's hand crawled up to his own bristling hair the reverent gesture of taking off his hat but he had not worn a hat into the presence of the dead remembering he let his palm rest on his whiskers his little finger between his teeth then finally he laid the sheet gently back in place and the end brushed the wet cement floor rest in peace stinker he said softly the door moved as if a breeze shoved it an inch more open but there was no breeze when pussyfoot left to pad back to his lair off the furnace room he saw no one at all in the dark old corridor he wanted to get to his desk right away open the locked drawer and go through his papers not that he would have far to go the one he wanted would be first on top he dropped the long box on his cot and went to his desk when the paper was in his hand his haste seemed to be satisfied like a man in a great quandary he put the yellowed envelope in his right hip pocket took it out and put it into his left hip pocket then into the breast pocket of his shirt with the flat button down the buttonhole however was old and stretched there just ain't no safe place he muttered and hunted through the litter on his dresser for a safety pin man can't never find nothin by golly tomorrow i'm going to buy me a safety pin whole dang package of safety pins but he didn't he had no opportunity the dawn had lost its rosiness, and the white-faced cattle on the hills were getting up to begin their first nuzzling in the sticky snow that had followed the October thunderstorm, when Mr. Wilkins was aroused by an insistent knocking on his door. Pulling on trousers and sweater over his nightshirt, he went to admit the sheriff. A few minutes later they walked across the road to the small ruined chapel. The little place had been scorched by fire, then partly torn down, leaving one room still intact. What had been an inner partition, gay with flowered paper, had become the outer wall, and the heater that once had warmed both rooms stood with its rump jutting out like a kibitzer, fascinated with what was going on inside. At this hour every inch of the roof and piled lumber was decorated with wet, melting snow. The sheriff was not interested in nature's cosmetics. He followed Mr. Wilkins onto the porch of this odd remnant, bending to clear the sign which read, Charity Chapel, in red that had run a little. He saw the old preacher push open the door that was never locked, and step together into morning twilight. "'You see, there it is,' Mr. Wilkins said, just as I laid it down. I even remember the passage I was reading. Look not mournfully into the past. It comes not back again. Wisely improve the present. It is thine.' The book, as he said, was lying face down on a small table that in other days would have been called a center table. Beside the table was a wooden rocker padded with a thin cushion of no color. Kitchen chairs of many designs were set in neat rows, a bench or two against the wall. The place smelled of barrenness, of dim old dust sifted into the wallpaper and around the pictures, hung almost touching one another, small black framed pictures of people in clothes of forgotten decades, stiffly sitting to have their portraits made. On the table, touching the book, was an electric lamp. Mr. Wilkins, his white hair must, and his eyes still swollen from sleep, reached out to turn on the lamp. There was only a fruitless click. I was sitting here, reading, you see, when the current went off. But my flashlight was in my pocket. I used one crossing the road at night on account of the ruts. So I turned it on to see the time. He smiled faintly. One might wonder why time could be so important to me. And your watch said? 
9.37, exactly. Your watch was right? Always, Sheriff. I check it every day with a new whistle at the brick kiln. I haven't had to set it in nearly a year. Although Mr. Wilkins had just done the same thing, the Sheriff reached out and clicked the lamp button. Nine minutes for murder, he mused. Nine minutes that could have been golden. Yeah, if you'd been able to get the switch connected again without discovery, nobody would ever have asked whether the lights went off in the gulch and the hospital at precisely the same minute. But Sister Judith had to trip him up. I didn't mean quite that. Mr. Wilkins picked up the book, closed it, ran his finger along the back. It will be hard for her. Sister Judy? I wouldn't say so. She'll just get a day's rest that she needs anyway. I refer to Sister Magdalene. The preacher's eyes were on his finger as it rubbed the book. I must remember not to lay a book open face down. It cracks the binding. Rather abruptly he turned and stepped out onto the porch. Across the road a cow bawled. Houses, set in no sort of order, saddled against the base of the cliff, which in its turn was the base of Balsam Mountain. The vertical crag also was the rim rock holding back the terrace upon which the hospital stood. Early visionaries had seen beautiful residences nestling upon that mountain. Their only error was in mistaking the side of the mountain upon which the nestling would be done. On the far slope, Balsam City had been built. In Gopher Gulch, none but a lumberman's axe had ever been set to the pines. We all came together, Mr. Wilkins said reminiscently. Sister Magdalene and Mr. Cassidy and I, and of course, Cardinal. Of course? from Big Balsam's viewpoint, but in her own right, also, she was noteworthy. You remember her? The sheriff had forgotten how Cassidy's name had been linked with Cardinal's, not that it mattered now. For an instant, standing in the bright sunshine, feeling the natural lift of the clean, tangy air, he wondered whether, after all, it was so imperative that he stood the decay of the past, find what had come out of that rottenness to kill the man. That the thing stemmed from the past, he was certain. Who would be moved to unpremeditated murder by the sight of a man struggling for life in a respirator? No, it had been planned, brooded over. Look not into the past, it comes not back again. Something like that, Mr. Wilkins had read in his book. But when the past lashed out in murder, when the law was your business. The most beautiful woman I ever saw. Cardinal? The sheriff caught up a phrase of the old man's recollection. Yes, she had magnificent red hair. I think it was from the hair that she took her name, Cardinal Red. None of those women ever used their right names. Remember her place, Sheriff? A poor thief trail? The Sheriff brought up the detail that lingered in his wife's hearsay memory of Cardinal. Yellow taffeta curtains. The curtains had hung to the floor, the envy of every woman who wore calico and hung scrim over her windows. But the envy had died when Cardinal's blood stained the hem of one curtain a thick and ugly brown. There was another facet to the Cardinal's story, the sheriff remarked. Father Anthony, Sister Magdalene's brother. Anthony Dumont? He brought the last sacraments of his church to a girl dying in Cardinal's house. But when he reached the house, there was no dying girl, and no one would admit to having called him. Strange that on his return from a bogus call, his horse should slip and they would tumble together down that vertical madness. The sheriff, remembering how he had been obliged to go to Sister Magdalene and tell her of the accident, did not at once comprehend the meaning of a small orange point that flashed suddenly on in a house across the road. By jolly, they fixed the power, 
The boy sure didn't waste any time. You keep in mind what you've told me this morning, Reverend. There'll be an inquest, and you'll be called on to testify. Mr. Wilkins appeared to be slightly puzzled, and the sheriff added, as he started toward his car, the lamp going out, you know, looking at your watch. Oh, to be sure, the preacher assented. The sheriff, maneuvering the car into a turn, speculated briefly upon the capacity of death to nibble away whatever secure foundation a being had managed to build under himself. Mr. Wilkins seemed to have no safety but his faith this morning. Sister Magdalene last night had been the same. Even the sheriff's faith, a practical one based on the eventual triumph of the law, was quailing before the fact that Big Balsam Cassidy had always been his own law, and the mystery of his death might never yield to another. He drove as slowly as his conscience would allow him around the mountain and up to the hospital. Gus only had climbed the long hill an hour after dawn, and taken Big Balsam away, but no hearse could hold the thing that seemed to have wings that hung in every corner, crouched just outside of every door, flitted it behind everyone who walked alone through a deserted passage. Marmion, working in the laboratory, desperately trying to keep her mind away from what Eloise had told her this morning, tried to dwell on the story of Sister Judy's adventure that was going the rounds. It was a fantastic story. Sister had gone to the crow's nest for some reason as yet unexplained, and straight to the master's switch. She had had an instant to see that the switch was loose. Then he had come up behind her, unheard. He could see her plainly, because she was standing against the aura of her flashlight. He caught her veil, and wound it firmly around her face, then laid her carefully down on the floor. She had heard the click of the switch being thrown back in place. Then he was gone. The storm had covered his departure, but the little sister had been too terrified to move. When she did go, finally, she ran, and tumbled down the stairs, and now she was confined most unwillingly to bed in one of the regular hospital rooms. And Eloise had been struck down last night, because someone thought it was Marmion who had come back to get her box. But why? Who knew she had had the box? Marmion's hand trembled on the adjusting screw of the microscope, and the black pepper corpuscles grew hazy in the side. Don't tell, Eloise had urged while she reeled into her clothes this morning, and Marmion had agreed. Eloise could not identify her assailant any more than Marmion had, or Sister Judy, and the omission of her prowling would only bring a reprimand from the sheriff, and most likely from Sister Polycarp. So Eloise had combed her hair gingerly, keeping away from the sore tenderness on the back of her head, and put on a faint touch of rouge, and tucked a scarlet handkerchief into her white pocket to pick up the color in her cheeks. And Marmion, wondering where Sister Peter's corset had gone, worked very slowly in the laboratory, trying to avoid mistakes. "'You are asking for trouble,' the sheriff had said. "'But how could you identify a figment of the night?' Suddenly, Marmion turned away from the microscope, took up her tray, and left the laboratory. Down in Sister Judith's room, King was leaning on the foot of the bed. The small nun was dainty in her modest white gown and nightcap. The only mark of her accident was the adhesive patch on her forehead. "'But there are only the two of us in the laboratory, doctor,' she pleaded. "'There's far too much work for Marmion alone, and she's inexperienced.' You may get up and dress, sister, and go to my office. The sheriff wants to talk to you again, but after that you're coming back to bed. Sister Judy closed her eyes and leaned back against her pillows. King stepped around to the bedside and took her wrist in his fingers. The pulse was rapid. Would you rather not talk to the sheriff today? I'd rather get it over, doctor. The doctor was puzzled. Puzzled, he believed, not worried. 
Affection for a person is a requirement for proper worry. All right, then. Signal for the nurse when you're ready, and lie down if there's any waiting. I don't want you up any longer than necessary. He went out, closing the door quietly. The convent was a humility mill, he told himself, grinding down every individual trait until all that was left was a pious one-track seal. At intervals the track swung around to him, and he would find on his desk various books and pamphlets, which he dropped into his waste-basket without reading, all but the ones he knew belonged to Sister Judy. These he unobtrusively returned to the laboratory. He never tried to explain why he should boil with rebellion over ties that did not bind him, and rules that did not govern his own life. When Sister Magdalene entered the room, King had just left. Sister Judy was combing her hair. It was gray hair, wiry and curly and very short. She stood to the side of the dresser so she did not see herself in the mirror. A sister must guard against vanity. But she saw Sister Magdalene, who had come with a clean coif. Sister Judy bound the headband tied around her forehead and pinned it. Then the soft folds of white went around her neck and up under her chin to be pinned on top of her head. The veil was laid on last and pinned, the same veil that had been so smothering a blindfold last night. She turned then to the superior, her eyes submissively on the floor. Together the two walked to the waiting room the sheriff was again using as an office. The sheriff was weary. He seated the nuns with their backs considerably to the light and sat down to listen to a story he believed he already knew backward. But you never could tell. There might be something he had missed last night. He listened absently, rubbing his lean, stubbled chin, his gaze going on out the window. An automobile zoomed up the long hill and scraped to a stop. Reporters, most likely. Cassidy's death in a normal manner would have made news. But his murder would be a sensation. And it would have to be solved by a tired old man who had started out in life as a cowpoke. And then he took off his shoes, sir, said Sister Judy. The sheriff clamped his jaw shut and bit his tongue. Blinking back tears of pain, he stammered. He, what, sister? He, he took off his shoes, sir. How could you tell? He was very close to me as I lay on the floor, and you know the little tapping that the tin tips of shoelaces make against leather? That's what I heard, and when he left, the steps were very soft. Thumps, you know. Wasn't the store making enough rumpus to cover footsteps? You'd think so, sir. Sister Judy attacked by an assailant who took off his shoes, Cassie the Great now lying on one of Gus Omley's slabs, the pious girl stubbornly unable to identify the almost certain killer, and running up the entrance stairs were three reporters who would ask deft questions, and perhaps uncover the bewilderment of the investigator. Helpless, that was the only adjective the sheriff could apply to himself at the moment. Reporters, I'll see him, Sister Magdalene. They don't need to bother you. But Marmion Pius, leaving the first floor, was meeting the three gentlemen head-on in the hall. They had just come up the entrance stairs. One was very tall and thin and blonde, one was short and ruddy, the third mildly nothing but middle-aged. The ruddy one spoke. "'Good morning, miss. I'm Williams of the Atlas Syndicate. Quite a racy incident here last night, eh? Oh, this is Jensen, Royal Press.' He indicated the middle-aged man. The tall, thin youth evidently did not rate an introduction. We'd like a human interest angle. You, excuse me, but haven't we met somewhere? I shouldn't wonder, said Marmion. I run across all sorts of queer things under the microscope. Mr. Williams had the grace to smile. 
Well, all right, but how about a few impressions? Front page. He stopped as if his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. Marmion knew why. She had heard the rustle of a habit behind her. She stepped slightly aside, amused at the young man's discomfiture. Sister Magdalene, her hands up her sleeve, was the very personification of dignity. You are newspaper reporters, gentlemen? The middle-aged man made the gentle reply one would expect from him. We have been sent by our respective editors to cover a story, sister. Mr. Cassidy's passing is of national interest. I understand, sir, the sister answered with corresponding mildness. But when she turned to the one who had spoken first, her severity would have been approved even by Sister Polycarp. I realize you are performing your duty in coming here. Perhaps you will appreciate that I am performing mine when I ask you to sit quietly in the waiting-room until the sheriff can see you. I will not permit any of the staff or patients to be questioned. I do not wish any pictures to be taken. I forbid you to go anywhere in the hospital. Do I make myself clear? The ruddy Williams grew ruddier. Mild Mr. Jensen bowed. The young man gulped down something that choked him. The waiting room is immediately behind you, gentlemen, the sister added. And without staying to see whether they entered, or whether Marmion spoke further to them, she turned and walked away. Her departure was a more effective guarantee of obedience than if she had slapped their wrists. The girl went on up the stairs. At the landing she looked down. The tall, nameless young man was watching her with transparent appeal, and not all of the appeal was for a story. A warm, pleasant sensation tingled through her, quite the opposite of feeling your lungs scorched with cold on a winter day. What an odd thing to remember. End of chapter 7